Hello, and welcome to the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Foundation. We're a thought leadership organization dedicated to the emotional and behavioral health of teens and young adults, with a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpiti, the executive director of the Mary Christie Foundation and the host of the Quadcast. They say that college campuses are just microcosms of what's going on in the world. From that perspective, there's an awful lot going on right now in higher education and certainly a lot to talk about. As college presidents make enormous decisions about reopening campuses among the COVID-19 pandemic, and people everywhere are angry and frustrated by the continued racial injustice in the country, counseling center directors are thinking about student mental health. Our guest today is Dr. Will Meek, the Director of Counseling and Psychological Services at Brown University. Welcome, Will, and thanks for joining us. Now, thanks for having me, Marjorie. I'm looking forward to this. Great. So, Will, I can call you Will, doctor. Is that okay? You can call me Will. Yeah. So, Will, you have the reputation among your students as being very relatable with a good read on what people are going through in terms of their mental health. So, these are really unprecedented times. Can you tell us what you are seeing in your students right now and how your services are supporting them? Yeah, I think part of the situation right now is having multiple levels of uncertainty and stress and for some people trauma layered together all while they're apart from their communities and and their peers. So that's created all sorts of challenges for each one of them individually, but certainly also then is something that our center needs to kind of respond to in unique ways. I know we're going to talk some about COVID-19 and the disruption to campus and in, in a lot of ways what our counseling center has done for that. But recently with the activism related to the murder of George Floyd and a lot of the unrest in the country, I think it's it's affected students in all sorts of different ways from those people who know people who are involved in situations like this, for people who are involved themselves in situations like this, for people who want to protest. And I think for people who are just feeling powerless on what to do. And so as clinicians at the Counseling Center, we've been doing a lot of thinking about how we can meet people where they're at and these sorts of things. And that means reducing some of our focus on having to have like a real specific goal for care. We're seeing a lot of people that just want to talk to process the events that doesn't look like psychotherapy. It just looks like people wanting to talk to somebody They might have a perspective that can help them feel better or at least make sense of the world right now. So a lot of the work has shifted in that way where we feel like we're doing more support work. We're doing more conversational dialogues with students, sometimes with groups of students, really to help them process and make sense out of this. We do some of that all the time, but we've been doing a lot more of that related to this. And I'd say us as a staff also, we've come together and we wrote a, a commitment statement about being anti-racist. And we're going to be putting together uh, an internal group to make that actionable and come up with some goals and and things that we can do as a center to make sure we're supporting people and being as great a citizens of the campus and the world as possible. I can imagine it's probably had quite an impact on the Brown campus, even if you are uh, physically shut down, given the history of activism there. Well, you must be particularly concerned about your students of color. You know, this COVID-19 and then the murder of George Floyd are really kind of a double whammy for these students. What has been your experience there? I think part of what we've been doing at this point is thinking about our Black students in particular, I think who have felt 
targeted long before this and kind of the type of exhaustion that goes along with being a black person in America and having to um, deal with a lot of this stuff on a, on, a, on a daily basis. And then kind of more broadly, students of color and other people with intersecting identities that this stuff is more prominent for. And so part of what I think we've done as a staff, besides trying to do outreach and making sure people know we're there, actually started a number of years ago when we really worked to diversify our staff. So we actually have a really diverse counseling center staff. 80% of the psychotherapists consider themselves to be providers of color. We have a lot of folks with intersecting identities related to that. We have a handful of folks that are international and we're doing therapy in six languages. So a lot of the work, I think, for us to be a resource and to be present and to be known as a safe place to have those conversations started long before these kind of events. And it was part of what drove us to become a more diverse organization. And so I think that's paying off where people can see folks that they hope will have an understanding. And being able to have that matter more than ever right now, it feels good, but it's also a type of work that, you know, I'm sensitive to the therapists that are called on sometimes more than others, depending on what's going on and the type of tax that also is on them to be having these conversations while they're also experiencing the same sort of things in their lives. So it's a really tricky time and it's a really sensitive time. I'm just trying to bring a lot of compassion to it. But a big part of what we've done, I think, was the work before this. Yeah, that's a great point and a good lesson for others. Well, you talked about having conversations, uh, not necessarily 50-minute therapy sessions. I want to ask you about your flexible care model, because that sounds very reflective of some of the student-centered changes that you had made well before the pandemic. In fact, I think you'd implemented them some 18 months ago. Can you tell us uh, about that flexible care model what are the tenets of it and really what motivated some of those changes that you made that are super innovative? I know it's a lot, but I think it's worth going through if, if you just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. It was really something that's been about 10 or 11 years in development, interestingly, although it was really put together in a, in a more formal package here at Brown in 2017. But it's really a way to look at how we practice in a counseling center model that would allow us to improve wait times, improve the amount of care people can get, and also think more strategically about how to schedule those things. And I drew inspiration from three big areas. One of them was multicultural psychology. And there's a lot of great work going as far back as the 80s and 90s that I was drawing from early on to think about how Eurocentric, a lot of the values of psychotherapy are, and some of the practices like advanced scheduling things and doing an intake before having kind of a conversation and having this formalized treatment process in an office. The second thing was the common factors literature that really looks at how malleable psychotherapy can be as long as there are certain core elements that are, are maintained so that we can think more broadly about helping, helping people. And the last one is drawing some inspiration from urgent care medical centers, which have really been a major innovation source in medicine by getting people in the same day, by having a lot of as-needed follow-ups, and by having an immediate care orientation. So what we end up doing, the sort of four pieces we talk about, the first one is same-day access. So a giant amount of students come to our center the same day that they call. This can be for all levels of need, routine urgent stuff, just want to check in, just have questions. But most people's entry point to the center is just coming in the same day they call. 
Second thing is we have these variable session lengths where we do a lot of sessions that are 25 to 30 minutes and we do others that are 45 to 50. We also play around with session frequency. A lot of people come in weekly. Sometimes people are coming in a couple times a week. Sometimes they're coming in every other week, depending on what their needs are. The third piece of it is having this immediate treatment orientation, where even from the very first session, we're trying to get down to like what they're coming in for and providing that help immediately. So for the example of these kind of meetings that are coming up that we're having based on the state of the country, somebody could call us, get in today or tomorrow not have to do an intake before they're talking about what happens or what's been happening in the country. And that's kind of a way it's played out for us. So basically, we don't do a full intake at the beginning. We're just trying to meet the student kind of where they're at and figure out what their needs are and try to deliver on that as fast as possible. And the last thing is we try to be really creative with follow-up appointments. So we try to customize like an individual path through the center. Sometimes that's just kind of differing configurations of the psychotherapy process, but often that's also involving other campus partners partners and sort of like a type of building multiple little teams to, to help students out based on what the, what the situation is. All that's in a spirit of being flexible, like the name of it, which basically means those are all nice principles to be working on and they also don't work for everybody. So we also try to be real thoughtful about making exceptions and thinking creatively to meet as many students' needs as possible. So it sounds like from the description, Will, that of your flexible care model, which again, I think is is really interesting for, for all of us to be looking at. It sounds like one of the premises or, or sort of the motivations for that is the sense that, that there isn't really one size fits all therapy for, for folks and that students are presenting, different students are presenting with different problems. Is, is that true? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think when we look at not just students' interest in psychotherapy and what they're looking for in terms of their goals, I think the whole idea of treatment or what a counseling center is to them is different. And I think when we consider, especially at Brown, we have students from all over the world with all types of different understandings about what even mental health is, let alone then how a treatment process works. We have to be really flexible and really broad in our thinking to meet all those folks' needs. And I think that we really try to create a range of pathways into the center and all of those options for customizing that path to as a way to be a culturally competent system to appreciate the diversity that students are bringing into that. And rather than having them conform to a certain model that we have, we try to create a broad system that can work within some parameters to get their needs met, no matter what their level of interest is, what their level of need is, or what their understanding of mental health is. That's a great point. Wanted to ask you about healthcare delivery, behavioral health service delivery, not versus prevention, but including prevention. So in your work, do you see a role for both? And are you thinking about that at Brown when you talked about getting students in? Are there ways to address some of their problems before they become acute? I really think that has been one of the effects, particularly of the same-day access part of the model. And it's anecdotal. I don't have kind of pre-test, post-test data. And those things are really difficult to pull off because there's so many variables. But anecdotally, there's been a lot less crises happening 
on a daily basis in the counseling center at Brown. And that was the same thing at University of Portland too. When we implemented the ability to get in without really waiting, it reduced a lot of the pressure on the type of urgent or crisis appointments coming in. One way I think about this is, you know, in a lot of places, a student will call for an appointment. They usually don't call the first day. They don't feel good. Usually people try to figure some things out or see if it'll pass. At some point, they'll call and ask for help. And if they end up having to wait a, a week or two or maybe longer, whatever was going on there is going to continue to get worse. Then if you have an intake as the first stop rather than something that's more entirely focused on the concerns, they could be waiting a lot longer to get more in-depth into the specific concerns they have, possibly waiting two, three weeks, a month before they're really diving in. At that point, a lot of problems can get a lot more severe. And so part of the effect I think that we've seen, especially with the same-day access, is it allows people to get in so quickly and paired with the idea of this immediate treatment focus, it lets us get right to it with people a lot quicker. Another thing that came out when I did a, a webinar with the Jed Foundation that I hadn't thought about until I was talking with them was that with being able to get people in sooner and seeing more students in the center more frequently, we're also asking safety questions a lot more frequently of more people. And I think that's really something that I think is important in suicide prevention and early detection for people that are struggling or could be at higher risk, depending on how things went. So that that level of access, I think, is a type of way of preventing things from getting more serious. And we also have more traditional prevention programs related to suicide prevention and and those types of those types of outreach and community building things but i think the model itself does do something to reduce the the pressure on crisis and urgent appointments because people know they can get in sooner and they can get in right away and they aren't going to have to wait for however long to be able to get in and get worse in that period of time. That's a great point. And I think that's one of the major concerns of many in terms of college student mental health is where there is a capacity issue on campus, then the, the waiting periods become really problematic for people in those situations. So I think the model is really interesting in a lot of ways. Big question, which is probably what you're dealing with 24-7, how will the changes that you've made to the model, how have they been impacted by the campus closures? Great question. You know, early on, I'll mention it in a couple of ways. I think with demand, once the closures started happening, it was almost like you know, dominoes across the country of schools closing. Once that happened, we actually saw kind of like a reduction in demand for those couple of weeks, which makes sense. People were transitioning home. They had to put all their energy towards figuring out how to pack their lives up and return home or figure out how to stay around campus, which was really, really intense and I think very stressful for a lot of people. So we saw a reduction and I, I had expected there to be a pickup somewhere as finals approached. And, and sure enough, kind of in the middle of April, we started to see a, a real return to the, to the levels that we usually see of student demand. And I think for us, we, you know, again, going back to the idea of kind of um, doing some things ahead of time that, that paid off in this case, like when we developed this model, I never thought we'd be in a global pandemic, but being able to switch even in the middle of a semester, like we, like we often do, in terms of how our model works and how we're getting students in and how to how to kind of roll with things it allowed us kind of an easier transition i think to 
telehealth and remote services than it would have been had we had a more traditional type of system. The two pieces we had the most difficulty in figuring out, one was how to kind of mechanically do the same day access stuff. So we've actually changed it to be next day during the pandemic. So that since this started, we've been able to get people in the next day if they wanted to the entire time. So we kind of had the architecture set up of how to do that and how to practice that way already. So that made that pretty easy. The other thing was just getting accustomed to telehealth. And I think, you know, the mechanics of doing therapy on a computer are okay to me. I think it's fine. I think there's probably a lot of research that's yet to be done on what, what would make it more effective. But there's been some definitely stories and some technical challenges with staying connected, having the technology actually work. I think not being able to make eye contact as a therapist in a genuine way, since we have to look at cameras to make eye contact is challenging and and there's something to that. So those were the other pieces, just clinically, how do we deliver it in this way? Uh, And I think we're doing pretty well now, but that that was harder to do for us, I think, than actually sorting out the mechanics of how to deliver it for students. Like students wouldn't have seen any of that. I think they would have seen us transition to basically saying, okay, you can get in the next day if you want, and we're keeping everything else going. So that's that's been really great. And again, I think we're in a good place now, but the, the transition to teletherapy just in general was was challenging. And my second question is, what are you looking at for the fall? You know, and when we're thinking about the fall, you know, our campus hasn't made a decision yet. And I know they're considering multiple proposals. And yeah, our president's been uh, a vocal supporter of, of people returning to campus in some sort of form, as long as it's safe for everybody. And I know they're working just around the clock, figuring out what what way to make that happen and what's going to work best. So for us, I'm keeping a pretty open mind about what to do. I think it'd be real surprising if we're not doing a whole lot of teletherapy in the fall, at least through the fall, just like we are now, knowing that the social distancing guidelines and the other sorts of things that are required to sit in a small room with somebody might make things higher risk. I think therapy would be real hard to do with a mask on. Most of our rooms would not allow for people to sit six feet apart. But I could imagine there needing to be some on-campus presence for urgent situations or crisis type of stuff happening. And whether those meetings happen in a different space in the center is one thing. But ultimately, I think we're looking at probably doing a whole lot of teletherapy through the fall until we can really be sure that doing in-person services in a larger volume is safe for everybody. So that's what we're looking at for the fall. So there's a lot being zoomed about in terms of like what permanent changes or, you know, what evolutions higher education will go through as a result of this unprecedented shutdown of campuses. Speaking specifically about supporting student mental health and mental health services, do you see any sort of major permanent changes as a result of what we've been going through? That's a really great question. I think in terms of how a counseling center works, I think this is definitely an opportunity for things to change significantly based on how a clinical model might work or, or what types of care is prioritized. Like I think things have been thrown up in the air so much that this really does provide an opportunity for a rethinking on a lot of campuses of how mental health should work and how it should be delivered and, and what sort of things are, are emphasized. The other part with the thinking about teletherapy, which has really not been something that had a ton of support before before we all kind of jumped into this, there was sort of like an ongoing legislative battle in a lot of states to make it possible and this sort of stuff. You know, I can definitely see there being some benefits to either a video session or the phone for people with disabilities where making it physically into a center isn't 
as comfortable or, or as even reasonable. I think for some people that have various types of psychopathology, like really severe social phobia or people who are depressed and having problems getting out of their room, I think there's probably a place for it in there too, just in terms of access and comfort. So I, I could imagine there being some aspects of this where there's some some communities and some groups of people and some individual students where this is better in a lot of ways for them. But I want to make sure as we kind of go, I've been listening for those and trying to think about where that would fit kind of in an ongoing way for us. So I think the at some some point, the the larger return to in-person services, I don't think would be reshaped too much, but I could imagine there being a role for stuff like this down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that as well. Let me ask you this, Will. There's been, uh, like I said, a lot of discussion about what we're learning from all this and what are the key considerations we should be thinking about as students return. And obviously there's some myriad that have to do with physical safety and whatnot. How important do you think the issue of mental health has been? And do you think that presidents need to be thinking more about that as they start to work through the many, many other elements of the reopening plan? Yeah, I think there's been some talk about, you know, the second pandemic is going to be one of mental health. And one of the things I've been attuned to from the beginning, when we started pulling people away from each other and their communities, that hasn't been part of a huge dialogue is thinking about quality of life and how when our quality of life is reduced, a lot of problems can happen, let alone the types of increased stresses that have also come at the same time. So when we're not able to do the things we love, to see and hug and spend time closely with the people we love, and we're pulled away from our types of activities where we find meaning, that's really a recipe for having really serious mental health issues on the on the other side of that. So I do have some pretty serious concerns on the broad scale, what those things do to our quality of life and then our, our general well-being. You know, in a more specific side related to people struggling with with mental health or other types of conditions, I think we're going to see at some point as this as things start to ease or there ends up being a vaccine of who's really going to have a hard time coming back from this. There's a type of fear that's out there that we look at each other as possibly being carriers of an illness. I think the type of focus on cleanliness and making sure every little thing is sanitized, that's going to have a detrimental effect when this is over on some percentage of the population who may be more prone to obsessive compulsive disorder or more serious anxiety disorders or, or agoraphobia. And on top of all that, I think the type of trauma people can experience in either experiencing the illness, losing someone in the illness, or experiencing some of the things that are the other parts that are happening in the country with the with the violence uh, related the things related to police violence. I think there's a huge swell of people that are going to have needs related to mental health, perhaps more than we've seen before. So I think continuing to invest in counseling centers, focusing on those programs, and making sure that those resources are accessible, I think is going to be crucial particularly for reopenings, when there's going to be a lot of grief, it's going to be different for folks, there's going to be a lot of stress related to it. I think it's going to be a really important time to be paying a lot of attention to, to mental health in ways that we haven't before. So great words of advice, Will, and I hope the presidents keep that up top of mind as they consider all of the other priorities coming back to campus. So thank you so much for talking with us today. As always, it's been a pleasure. 
thank you so much. It was great. It was great chatting with you as well. And I hope you have a great summer too. You take care. This has been the Quadcast, a production of the Mary Christie Foundation. For more information about our work, visit marychristiefoundation.org. Subscribe to the Quadcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating or review. It really helps. I'm your host, Marjorie Malpiti. Thanks for listening.